For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this morning is Our Reasonable Service. This is part one, Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. This morning, brothers and sisters, we begin now a new section in Paul's letter to the church at Rome. And Paul in this new section now shifts emphasis, if you will. The emphasis of the book now shifts. After Paul introduced the book and stated the theme of the book in chapter one, We saw, beginning in chapter 1, the wrath of God revealed, chapters 1 through 3, in that first section of the book. In the next section of the book, we saw the righteousness of God then revealed in the gospel from the end of chapter 3 through the end of chapter 11. Now, in this final section of the book, if you will, chapters 12 through 16, Paul places a greater emphasis on an application of all that we've learned so far in this letter. We might consider this subject of this section to be the righteousness of God applied. In chapters 1 through 3, the wrath of God revealed. Chapters 3 through chapter 11, the righteousness of God revealed. And now in chapters 12 through 16, the righteousness of God applied. An application, if you will, of all that we've learned in the the life, all that we've learned in this letter an application of that in the life of one who has been justified through faith alone in Christ alone. Paul moves to an emphasis now on application. Now, many might characterize this transition in the letter as a transition from doctrine to practice. And although that's not entirely wrong to think about the transition in that way, I really don't think it's helpful for us uh, to think about it in those terms. And here's why, right? As we discussed last week at the end of chapter 11, all doctrine is intensely practical. All doctrine is intensely practical. And when we're talking about very practical things in the word of God, those practical things are undergirded by theological significance. They're undergirded by doctrine. All things in the Christian life are intensely theological. All Christians should live in light of the theology that they learn and understand from God's revealed word. The Christian life is being conformed to Christ's image And as we're being conformed in Christ's image, living and worshiping in accord with revealed doctrine. Those two, doctrine and practice, doctrine and theology, if you will, doctrine and practice are married together and they cannot be torn asunder. You must study, right? In in light of this anti-intellectualism that is sweeping through the church, you must study. You must read. You must learn. You must grow. You must mature. You must. There is a content of revealed truth that has been once for all delivered to the saints. But the genuine Christian life, the genuine Christian life will never simply terminate upon what you know. It doesn't end there. It begins there. What we know must sink from your head into your heart and find expression in how you live, how you love, how you serve, and how you worship. Information will result in adoration. Information and adoration will lead to life transformation. We must study, we must learn for the sake of growing in our knowledge of him and growing in our love for him, growing in the Christian life. So Romans 12 to 16 then is a call to live a life that adorns the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a call to live a life that is in keeping with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to to live a life that is consistent with a true understanding of who we are in union with Jesus Christ and what has been given us in our union with Jesus Christ. It's a call to live a life that is a true expression of gospel realities. We are to live a life that is a true expression of gospel realities. And the only true expression of gospel realities that is consistent with all that we've been given and with all that we are and have in union with Jesus Christ is a life of complete and entire consecration to God. That is the only reasonably consistent life when you consider all that we have 
all that we've been given, all that we are in union with Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse one, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, based upon all that you've learned, based upon all that you've embraced through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, I beseech you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Considering the life of the Christian, considering the life of the Christian, Paul is speaking of the only response to the gospel that is a consistent reflection of the gospel. It is only reasonable that we give all that we are, all that we have. Undivided devotion, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, think with me for a moment. When we start talking that way, people get nervous. When we start talking about that kind of devotion, that kind of commitment, that kind of consecration, people get nervous. Many professing Christians have, over a long period of time, in their professing Christian lives, have manufactured, built up many complex, self-justifying defenses against the very idea of duty associated with the Christian life. They despise any talk of obedience. Duty is a four-letter word in much of evangelicalism today, right? There are these complex defense mechanisms built up, these self-justifying excuses built up in the heart and mind of many professing Christians against the notion that we should commit anything to the Lord Jesus Christ or that the Lord Jesus Christ expects of us any great commitment. The fact that there is actually a debate about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, is actually proof of that very point. The fact that, that people debate the Lordship of Jesus Christ is an absurdity. It's proof of that very point. Considering our study, if you will, of the whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson on Wednesday nights. The legalist says we have to obey. The antinomian says we don't have to obey. What's the problem that they share in common? Thinking of devotion to Jesus Christ in terms of we have to or we don't have to. It's the have to that they share in common. Rather than rather than seeing or thinking of devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ as we delight to. Rather than thinking of devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of we want to, we desire to. That's the joy and rejoicing of my heart. To think of Jesus Christ as our treasure. Jesus Christ is Lord. And all men are duty-bound to obey him. That's just not, it's not a debate. It's not a debate. But Paul here is referring to a devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is referring to a devotion to God that is the only rational and reasonable response of the heart, of the mind, of the will of a person who has embraced through faith all that God has done for us through the person and work of his own son whom he sent to die on our behalf. He's thinking of a devotion from the heart that is reasonable, that is rational, that is the only reasonable and rational response of a heart that embraces, that understands, that has come to terms with all that God has done for us in Christ. In 1680, Hercules Collins published a Baptist version of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's called an Orthodox Catechism, and we have uh, copies, should have copies on our bookshelves out here. It's a terrific catechism. I highly um, commend it to you. And it's said that that catechism, an Orthodox Catechism, built on the Heidelberg, that is structured after the book of Romans. There are three sections in the catechism summarized as guilt, grace, and gratitude. Right? Guilt, grace, and gratitude. In other words... The catechism first exposes our guilt, our sin. It's Romans chapter one through Romans chapter three. It points us then to the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's Romans four through 11. And then it teaches us the motive and the method for living a life of gratitude. Romans chapter 12 through Romans chapter 16, right? Guilt, grace, and gratitude. Introducing that third section 
which is what we're doing today in Romans chapter 12, introducing that third section on gratitude, question 91 is this. Whereas we are delivered, whereas we are delivered from all our sins, whereas we are delivered from all our miseries without any merit of ours, by the mercies of God, only for Christ's sake, for what cause then are we to do good works? That's question 91. The answer, because after Christ has redeemed us with his own blood, he renews us also by his spirit to the image of himself that we, having received so great benefits, should show ourselves then all our lifetime thankful to God and to honor him. I like that, right? That is the motive of Christian devotion. Gratitude to, toward, love for God. So as much as Romans chapter 12, verses one and two is a call to Christian devotion, it's a call to gratitude. It's a reasonable, it's a rational call to love with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Is there any other way to love God? Is there any other way to love him considering all that he's done for us in Jesus Christ? Having been redeemed by his own blood, having having received such great benefits, the Christian delights. The one who sees those things for what they are, the one who sees those realities through the eyes of faith, delights to show gratitude in entire consecration to him. And Paul refers to this consecration as our reasonable service, our reasonable service. Now first, from Romans chapter one, or 12 verse one, I want you to consider with me the foundation of our service from verse one, the foundation of our service. The apostle Paul urges or exhorts brothers and sisters in the faith. He says in verse one, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Now Paul draws a conclusion from his context. He draws a conclusion from all that we've talked about so far in the letter. The previous section of the letter contains some of the most exalted theology in all of the Bible. And all of that theology terminates upon God's glory. Paul says, for of him and through him and to him are all things. All of that exalted theology extols the name of our great God and his Christ, right? Exalts God. Therefore, Paul says, brethren, therefore, brothers and sisters, on the basis of those spiritual truths, on the basis of that exalted theology, on the basis of all that we've learned, I implore you, Paul says, I urge you, I exhort you, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, what is Paul doing when he does this? Paul is exhorting Christians to consecrate themselves entirely to God, not because Paul merely says so, like don't do it because I tell you to. Paul says to consecrate yourself entirely to God on the bedrock of God's revealed word, on the bedrock of God's redemptive accomplishment. Our devotion to God must be built on a foundation. Your devotion to God, your devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ has to have a foundation. It has to be rooted in something. It can't sit on air, but it has to be built on the right foundation or it goes nowhere. If it's not built on the right foundation, then it's not true Christian devotion and nothing will come of it. It will fail when the going gets tough. If our Christian life is not built on the right foundation, then it will be an empty facade of smoke and mirrors and it will not last, it will not stand. It will be a house built on sand. It's going to be swept away when the first judgment comes along. Therefore, Jesus said, listen to these words of the Lord, whoever hears these sayings of mine, that's doctrine, and does them, that's obedience, consecration, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house, built his Christian life on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded upon the rock. That house of a Christian life was founded upon a solid foundation. What are we to do, brothers and sisters? We are to lay a solid foundation from the word of God upon which we can build our Christian life, right? Build your Christian life on that foundation, 
do you notice something lacking in your devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ? Then strengthen your foundation. Do you see weakness in your Christian life? Then strengthen that foundation. Build your Christian life on that foundation. That foundation of divine accomplishment is further defined in verse one as the mercies of God. Paul says in verse one, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Notice in verse one that Paul does not say, I bind you sinner under the condemnation of the law. But he's not speaking to the wicked. Paul is speaking to Christians. He's speaking to you. If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he's speaking to you. He does not say, I guilt you sinner under a fear of judgment. (laughs) He doesn't say that. I charge you now against the flames of hell. You better. Paul doesn't say that. Paul is speaking to Christians. Paul is appealing to Christians. There There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Guilt is a motivator. But guilt is a terrible motivator. We have the greatest motivation. We have the greatest motivation because God, that's our motivation. And God through Jesus Christ has saved us from our sin, forgiven us of our sin and given us an inheritance with the saints in the light. We have the greatest motivation. Legal guilt or slavish fear is not the motivation that Paul refers to here. And brothers and sisters, it shouldn't be the motivation that you refer to either. The foundation that Paul is referring to has been laid with the gospel. The foundation that Paul is referring to has been laid with the gospel. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation. Do you remember that from Isaiah 29 in our text before? A tried stone, a precious stone, a sure foundation. And whoever believes upon him, not it, but him, will not be put to shame. We're talking about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, you cannot build your foundation. You cannot build upon your work. You cannot build upon your person. You can't even build on the efficacy or on the trustworthiness of your own faith. You can't do it. You're to build your faith on the mercies of God. You're to build your faith on that foundation laid in the gospel. So sitting here this morning, would you acknowledge your great need of mercy? Would you acknowledge that this morning? Would you acknowledge your need of mercy? I remember sitting across the table from a guy one time at lunch and I preached the gospel to him and he's like, what's the big deal? And he wanted to ask me about it. And uh, he said, I'd never thought of myself as a sinner. That is a problem. That's problem number one. <laughs> Would you acknowledge this morning your need of God's mercy? Do you see yourself in need of the mercy of God? You have committed unspeakable crimes. If we're going to build the foundation of the Christian life on the mercies of God, as Paul has exhorted us to do here, we need to understand that we need the mercies of God. Would you acknowledge that need of mercy? Or are you sitting in the chair your arms are strapped in. You've got the wet sponge on your head, the tin hat on your head. And the divine judge has his hand on the switch and it doesn't concern you. <laughs> and you're unconcerned with it. Uh, you don't think of it ever. You don't recognize your surroundings. Is that you this morning? Or do you see yourself as in need of God's mercy? Paul describes the foundation of Christian devotion as the mercies of God. The mercies of God. The mercy of God freely offered in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The mercies of God that he freely offers to sinners. Have you experienced the mercy of God this morning? Are you a recipient of those mercies? Are you an undeserving recipient of all the blessings of God that he's poured out in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, I plead with you. I implore you, build your devotion to him on that foundation. Build your devotion to him on the foundation of his mercies poured out to you. The foundation of our service is the foundation of divine accomplishment through the gospel. All that has been done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, all that has been given to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ, 
Paul describes them as the mercies of God. Build your service on that foundation. Second, we've considered the foundation of our service. Consider with me the nature, the nature of our service. Paul says in verse one, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. Now think about verse one with me. In Paul's reference to the body, Paul doesn't have only in mind our physical bodies. Paul has in mind the entirety of your person, the entirety of your person. He's not speaking in terms of your physical body as divorced from your spirit or as divorced from your heart and your mind. He's exhorting to He's exhorting you to present yourself, the whole of your person, as a living sacrifice. Heart, mind, will, emotions, desires, affections, imaginations, aspirations, ambitions. Devote yourself. Consecrate yourself. However, that being said, there is a point to Paul's use of that term body. The Greeks, later the Gnostics, would claim a distance, would claim a separation, if you will, between body and spirit. The essential nature, nature of a person would, was to be found in the spirit or in the mind of that person. And they thought that you could indulge your flesh, indulge your body as often as you wanted to in any way that you wanted to, that the body didn't matter. Paul is saying no. Paul is saying no, but present your bodies, present yourselves, present the entirety of your person as a living sacrifice. And just as the heart and mind or the spirit of a person isn't divorced from the body of that person, the use of the body isn't only referring to the sinful indulgence of physical lusts. We should not only, as Paul says, learn how to possess our own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. We shouldn't only learn how to possess our physical bodies in that way, but we should also employ our bodies in the service of God. Present our members, the members of our bodies, as instruments of righteousness. Do you recognize that from Romans chapter 6? We are to devote the members of our bodies to him, and we are to devote the entirety of our person to him, heart, soul, mind, and strength. The picture of this that Paul presents is a picture that is drawn from animal sacrifice in the Old Testament cult of Israel. Just as that Old Testament offering was slain, its blood shed upon the altar, the believer's old man is crucified with Christ. His death to sin has become our death to sin. But unlike that animal sacrifice, our sacrifice is to be a living sacrifice. We'll talk about that in a moment. Now that, that concept of a living sacrifice was first introduced to us in Romans chapter six. Turn there with me. Just flip back a couple of pages for Romans chapter six. And look there beginning at verse five. Romans chapter six, verse five. For if, brothers and sisters, we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be united together in the likeness of his resurrection. Those who have died in him are raised in him. Do you see? Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves of sin. When your old man was crucified, that body of sin that you were bound to has been done away with in Jesus Christ. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can you see how in Romans chapter 6, Paul is setting up his statement his statement now in Romans chapter 12, that as that sacrifice died, we are to sacrifice ourselves, so to speak, to sin and self. We are to die to self. This is a, an entreaty, if you will, an exhortation to self-denial. Therefore, therefore, verse 12, present your bodies a living sacrifice, Paul would say, right? How are we to do that, Paul? Therefore, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. Do not present your members, the physical parts of your body, as instruments of unrighteousness, but present 
yourselves, the entirety of your person to God as being alive from the dead and your members, those physical parts of your body as instruments of righteousness to God. In other words, we're not just merely to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and mind. We're to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. You see? A Christian is someone who has died to sin in union with Jesus Christ and someone who has been raised to walk now in newness of life. Living, a living sacrifice now describes the spiritual state of a believer. One who has been justified through faith alone in Christ alone is one who has been made a new creature in Christ. He has been brought to life from the dead. A person in union with Jesus Christ is a person once dead in sins and trespasses. A person who once walked according to the flesh. A person who once did those things ran in that course of disobedience and is a person now made alive in Jesus Christ. A person now living and walking in the power of the Spirit. Paul says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Presenting your bodies a living sacrifice also suggests a continuous sacrifice. In other words, it's not a once and done like those animal sacrifices in the Old Testament worship of Israel, it is a living and ongoing, a perpetual, a continual sacrifice. Now with the use of this imagery in Romans chapter 12, verse one, back there, this service that Paul is describing, this offering or presenting yourself as a living sacrifice, Paul is describing this as an act of worship an act of worship. Not only is the sacrifice living, the sacrifice is also holy and acceptable or well-pleasing. Holy and acceptable to God. Literally in the Greek, present your bodies a sacrifice. Present yourselves as a sacrifice, living, holy, acceptable to God, right? Living, as we said, suggests a continual sacrifice, an ongoing sacrifice. We are to give our lives to him. Holy suggests that we're not just to give our life, but we're to give our life to God. It's to be consecrated entirely to him, separate from sin, separate from self to him. Acceptable suggests that that sacrifice should be something with which God is well-pleased. It should be a sacrifice that is a sweet-smelling aroma. You can see in that, can't you, how a sacrifice that falls short of that is not well-pleasing to him. A sacrifice that falls short of that reveals idolatry in the heart. A sacrifice that withholds from him is not a sacrifice that is entirely consecrated or holy to him. Can you see how this is the only reasonable, the only rational sacrifice, the only rational or reasonable act of service or worship that is living and holy and acceptable to God? Now, this analogy, this analogy, this picture that Paul paints is drawn from the burnt offerings of Israel. Drawn from the burnt offerings. You'll find an example of the burnt offerings in Leviticus chapter 1, chapter 6, chapter 9. Many other places in the Bible, the burnt offerings weren't instituted in Leviticus 1, 6, and 9. They came earlier. We see examples in scripture where burnt offerings were made, given before the law, right? The Hebrew word for the burnt offering or for that sacrifice is the word olah. Not saying hello, it's a name for that sacrifice, okay? (laughs) Um, The word olah in Hebrew means to go up, to go up. It's an offering of ascension, if you will. It's an offering that uh, is depicted in the smoke that rises from that offering into heaven toward God. Now think about that picture for a moment. The sacrifice that produced that smoke arising to heaven was to be unblemished of the highest quality, of the highest value. It was to be a supreme sacrifice, if you will. It was costly. Anyone presenting this sacrifice presented this sacrifice in an act of self-denial. After the census, when God had ceased the plague and David intended to worship God with a burnt offering. If you remember, he went to Arauna, the Jebusite, to buy his threshing floor and to offer a bull in sacrifice in a burnt offering to God. Arauna um, 
offered to give the bull to David. And David said, no, I will not offer a burnt offering with that which costs me nothing. The sacrifice was costly. All of this pictured something to the Israelite who offered a burnt offering to God. It was costly. It represented self-denial. The offering was to be washed. The entrails and the back legs were to be washed. Well, if you have ever spent any time on a farm, right? You know what the entrails and the back legs of an animal would look like coming in from the, from the field. That's a picture of our sin. That's a picture of our depravity. You ever wonder what our depravity looks and smells like? That's it, right? That's it. It was to be washed. Unlike other sacrifices in which part of the sacrifice was burnt and part left for the priests to eat, benefited both the offerer and the priests and was offered up to the Lord, the burnt offering would be entirely, entirely burnt up in the fire. It was an offering of entire consecration. It was korban, given entirely to the Lord. Later, the Pharisees would corrupt the use of that term, uh, claiming to keep a portion of their money so they wouldn't have to take care of their parents in their old age, right? Consider it korban, entirely the Lord's. Wicked men. The picture of this sacrifice was one of total or entire consecration to God. The burnt offerings were to be sacrificed morning and night. Under the law, the fire on the altar of burnt offerings was to never go out, never go out. For that reason, it was also called a continual burnt offering. You'll see it referred to as a continual burnt offering. In the scriptures, it was referred to as a whole burnt offering. The entire offering was spent and it was a continual burnt offering. It was to be offered before the Lord continually. Now, let's make some observations about that offering and think with me. The sacrifice of the burnt offering was intended to be a symbol that symbol represented God's provision for sin and the ultimate, prom, uh, the ultimate provision for sin that he made in his own son, the promised Messiah, right? It was a type of a future anti-type, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would fulfill that offering in his own person and work. But it also, that offering was also to symbolize Israel's faith in God. It was to symbolize the Israelites' faith in God's provision for sin. As the Israelite placed his hand on the head of that burnt offering and transferred sin from himself to the head of that animal, it symbolized his faith in God for the forgiveness of his sins. It it symbolized his intention to love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength because what he gave was costly. What he gave was entirely consecrated. It was entirely burnt up. It was a symbol of his faith and his commitment to love the Lord, his God. That sacrificial offering was not to be a heartless or mindless ritual. It was a symbol. It was an offering that was supposed to be an act of a worship from that person that reflected the heart, reflected the mind, reflected the understanding of the worshiper. Often, we know this to be true in the Old Testament, the Israelites were rebuked for their heartless ritualism. Often they were rebuked when the sacrifices were offered without the proper heart, without the corresponding spiritual realities that the sacrifices were supposed to represent. They were rebuked when they tried to offer sacrifice that did not correspond with the heart that they were supposed to represent. Micah chapter six, verse six, with what shall I come before the Lord? With what shall I bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? In other words, shall I come before the Lord with these things only? Is that what the Lord is pleased with? Verse eight, he has shown you Oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. In other words, God commanded the sacrifices. But when you bring the sacrifice, bring the sacrifice with love for the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Apart from that faith, apart from that humility, apart from that love for God, their sacrifices were a sham. 
They were empty. Their worship was empty. The same is true for you and I, brothers and sisters. Apart from love for the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, your, your worship is a sham. Rather than a sweet-smelling aroma, those sacrifices of Israel became a stench in the anthropomorphic nostrils of God. Right? They became a stench to him, something that was filthy in his sight. The pleasing aroma was required, in other words, in their worship, right? The pleasing aroma was meant to be required in their acts of worship when they brought their sacrifices. The Old Testament Israel, Israelite actually knew that he was responsible for producing the right aroma to God in his sacrifices. He knew that. He knew that he was responsible for whether that sacrifice would be a sweet-smelling aroma or a stench in the nostrils of God. Now, we know that these sacrifices were entirely fulfilled in the sacrificial and substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. We know that. Because of Jesus Christ, there is no longer any need for burnt offerings. The area up here is not an altar. <laughs> it's not an altar. That is ridiculous. It's not an altar. No one should ever think that walking up an aisle in a church is going down front to the altar. <laughs> there is no sacrifice going on here that requires an altar. Jesus Christ is the once for all sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. He alone is that sacrifice. However, however, for the Israelite, bringing a sacrifice involved gratitude for grace. Bringing a sacrifice involved faith in God for God's forgiveness. It involved, bringing a sacrifice involved a commitment to love God and to keep his commandments. It was a commitment to worship the Lord his God with his heart, his soul, his mind, his strength. The sacrifice of the burnt offering signified his own commitment to being a living sacrifice in service to God. It signified his faith. The faith and obedience that was supposed to be demonstrated by that Old Testament Israelite in the symbolism of the burnt sacrifice, the faith and obedience that made that sacrifice a sweet-smelling aroma to God, think with me, is the same faith and obedience that should adorn our worship of God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In other words, our love for God should adorn the gospel in our worship. Our sacrifice of praise, our sacrifice of faith, our sacrifice of consecration should adorn the gospel through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. The same faith and obedience should adorn our worship. Animals are no longer expected. But faith, love, good works are expected as sacrifices to God that are well-pleasing to him, that are sweet-smelling aromas to him. Those sacrifices of praise that flow from a complete and continual consecration to God, a self-denying sacrifice of that which is most costly, your very life represented by the woman. That worship represented by the woman in Matthew 26 who took the alabaster flask of costly oil and broke it and poured it out in full. Full consecration. The entirety of it. Anointing the head and feet of Jesus before his death. Jesus said, Assuredly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. That is a sacrifice with which God is well pleased. It is holy. It's a living sacrifice. It is holy, consecrated to him, and it is well-pleasing, a sweet-smelling aroma. The New Testament authors use that very same sacrificial language to describe our worship in the New Covenant. Listen to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Therefore, by him, through Jesus Christ, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. You hear the components of a sacrifice that is living or continual, holy, consecrated to God, that is acceptable, a sweet-smelling aroma to him? 
Philippians chapter 4. Paul says in verse 16, for even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek that gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul is imploring each of us to present ourselves as a sacrifice to God, living, holy, well-pleasing to him. Do you see? We are to present ourselves entirely, continually as an act of worship. It is that act of worship through our union with Jesus Christ that is a sweet-smelling aroma to God considering the mercy that we have received, considering the great benefits that we've received in union with Jesus Christ, there is no other response that could possibly be seen as reasonable. Are we to believe that some partial sacrifice is going to suffice? Some partial offering will suffice. A living sacrifice is the imagery that Paul uses to describe the self-denial that is characteristic of Christian devotion. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. Further, think with me, hang in there with me, considering the nature of our service, well, we've considered the foundation of our service. We've considered the nature of our service. Paul referring to a pattern of entire consecration. He refers to the living sacrifice then as our reasonable service, our reasonable service. Some of your translations read your spiritual worship or your spiritual service of worship. The word is latreia. Latreia refers to an act of worship in service to God or an act of service in worship of God. It carries the, the same sense. It's an act of service that is worship of God, an act of worship that is service to God. The sacrifice of your very person, right? The complete sacrifice of self-denial that is to be living, holy, and well-pleasing to God. Paul describes that as an act of service, that consecration is an act of service in the worship of God. We are to worship God with that act of service. Paul describes that entire consecration of heart, soul, mind, and strength in service to God as logikos. It's where we get our word logical. It's entirely reasonable. It's entirely rational. Paul is referring to that which accords with reason, right? That was understood to be reasonable. It's, it's reasonable to give everything that you are It's reasonable to sacrifice everything that you are to him. Presenting ourselves to God as a living sacrifice is our reasonable service of worship. Paul means to convey in this that a full consecration of all that we are is the only rational response to the blessings that have been poured out on us through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. When I rightly think of all that is mine in union with him, the only reasonable conclusion that I can come to is that he is worthy of everything that I can give. The only rational thing I can do, the only rational option available to me is to do exactly what Paul is exhorting me to do here in Romans chapter 12, verse one, to present myself a living sacrifice. Any any other response would be unreasonable. Any other response would be irrational. Right, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, the love of Christ compels us. Notice it's not my love for him at this point that compels me. It's his love for me. The love of Christ for me compels me, and so I judge thus. If Christ died for all of us, giving himself entirely for us to save us, then we all died in him, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. In other words, you have been bought at a price. You are not your own. So we've come full circle then, haven't we? We've come full circle. We are to know, 
We are to understand, we are to embrace through faith all that God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And then if you are thinking reasonably about those things, if you're meditating on those things, if you come to reasonable conclusions about those things as the love of God is being poured out in your heart by his spirit, that will produce within you gratitude, love, joy, faith, hope, And then you're going to arrive at the the only reasonable conclusion. You're going to arrive at a rational, reasonable conclusion. Christ has loved me with the full measure of his devotion. I will love him with the full measure of mine. Do you see? I will love him as he first loved me. I desire to be a living sacrifice for him. That's the only reasonable response to those realities. Don't think of yourself. Don't... Think of that ongoing act of service as a burden. That's why the obedience of the Christian is not burdensome. You think of that living sacrifice as your delight. You think of that living sacrifice as your, as your highest aim. It's what your heart, if you're indwelt by the Spirit, if you're a saved person, if you've been justified through faith, if you've been, become a child of God, then this is what your new heart longs for. That's what your new heart longs for. It's the only reasonable, rational response. It's our reasonable service. Paul may speak of this as reasonable or rational, but we can't fool ourselves into thinking that this is natural to the human being. It's not natural to a lost person. Uh, Christians are the only ones who respond like this, and you can't fake it. Christians are the only ones who respond this way. Why is that? is because that response of a genuine Christian is spirit-wrought. It is spirit-wrought. That said, Paul entreats us, brothers and sisters, the one who has put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who desires from the heart to love God in this way, Paul entreats us to cultivate this level of commitment, to cultivate this level of consecration, to pursue it fully. The Christian life isn't merely about showing up to the church on the Lord's Day. You and I are to worship God with the entirety of our, our, of our lives. Our worship, in that sense, is to be constant. It is to be complete. We should be constantly seeking that which is well-pleasing to him in all that we think or say or do. I should be thinking, I should be seeking to be holy, acceptable, well-pleasing to him in all the words that I say, in all the things that I do, in all the work that I set my hand to, in all the thoughts and imaginations that preoccupy my mind, in every bit of time that I spend that's been given to me, in every cent that the Lord has given to me, in every relationship that the Lord has put in my life, and a host of other things that make up the moments of our lives. In every one of those moments, I should be seeking to be holy and well-pleasing to him. In the words of Robert Martin, those represent means by which I either offer to God or withhold from God the worship which is his right. Every moment that is given to us represents a means whereby I either give, offer to God, or withhold from God the worship, which is his right. Everything is to be considered. Do you think of your performance on the job as an act of worship? It is. That's what Paul is saying. Do you think of your service to the brothers and sisters in this church as a necessary service in the worship of God? That's the way that we're to see it. Think of the way that you spend your time. Are you offering the sacrifice of praise? Or are you consuming the time that you've been given on your own lusts? Now, Paul's not referring here to an ascetic. He's not referring to... um, God, God gives us many good things to enjoy. And we should enjoy those things. The Lord knows we need a break now and then, right? So not all recreation is sinful. Not all entertainment is sinful. Not all the ways in which you spend your time that you enjoy are sinful. But what is Paul saying? That needs to be considered within a framework of the worship of the living God. 
Um, your rest is necessary. It's necessary so that you can consecrate yourself wholly to him. So take rest and consecrate yourself wholly to him. Do you see the connection? Take stock of your commitment. Take stock of your commitment to the work that he's given you to do. That work should be our delight. Brothers and sisters, we have to learn to do this. We have to discipline ourselves to think this way. We have to discipline ourselves to do these things. In light of what Christ has done for me, what in this circumstance does he ask of me? I have to discipline myself to think that way. We don't always think that way. If you're honest with yourself, we often, daily forget that. We find ourselves in circumstances where we're not thinking about that at all. We have to discipline ourselves to think that way. In light of what Christ has done for me, what in my circumstances does he ask of me? That line of thought should have far-reaching implications for your Christian life. It's going to impact you in every square inch of your Christian life. And if we cannot begin to think and to speak and to act in this way, then we can have no way of ever approaching the level of devotion that Paul is calling us to in this text. Unless you begin to cultivate the discipline of thinking and acting in this way, then you can never draw near to the worship the level of devotion that Paul is charging us with, calling us to in this text. We'll never move on to that kind of Christian maturity. We'll never move on to true Christian devotion. We are to be a living sacrifice. We are to be a holy, set-apart sacrifice. We are to be a well-pleasing sacrifice to him. All of that is so that our very lives may terminate upon his glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, uh, thank you for this text. Thank you for the high calling that it presents us with. And thank you that that is reasonable and it is the delight of our heart. Strengthen us by your spirit to pursue that charge for your glory, for our good, for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. May he be magnified, may he be exalted, may he be worshiped and praised in Jesus' name. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.